morning one and all. It's good to see you all here. Thank you. Perhaps, perhaps a, round, a rousing um, round of happy birthday. It could be appropriate, but later. And um, if you wish to give gifts, my, my address is in the, uh, the church directory. But not yet as old as some. Um, Alwyn, as we know, was um, actually Mary Jones' Sunday school teacher. So, <laughs> so, where are we going this morning with this passage? Well, I'm going to do three things, hopefully. Uh, first one, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson. I'm sure you'll love that. Um, the second part, I'm going to just have a, a brief look at some of the salient points in the passage itself. And then thirdly, hoping to uh, apply it in ways that might be of practical benefit to us. So a bit of a history lesson, some exegesis, and then some application. So see where we go. Now you can probably guess where we might start if we're going to give you a bit of a history lesson. Because we're going to start with the Reformation. Because today's topic is justification. And over these few weeks, uh, this part of the beginning of the year, we're looking at a, a number of terms that Christians will use that are kind of technical terms, terms that have a rich meaning, but sometimes we just throw them around and we're not absolutely clear what it is they might actually mean or what their implications might be. And so that's what we're, we're looking at. To, uh, that's what we're looking at over these few weeks. And today, in particular, we're looking at the the word justification and trying to sort of work out what that might mean and how that might uh, have significance for us. And it's a particularly significant word because it's, it's a term that really triggered in some ways the reformation of the church in 1517. And again, Alvin was there and he's a friend of Martin Luther. Um, the October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted on the, uh, the church or the castle church door in Wittenberg uh, where he was living as a, as a lecturer and a monk, um, 95 theses uh, in response to the attempted sale of indulgences, and I'll explain that later. He posted them up on this, this door, just kind of basically went up and sort of stuck a nail in, and there were these 95 points that he'd made uh, to discuss indulgences. Now, in those days, in that kind of context, it was, that was a perfectly normal thing to do. Martin Luther wasn't trying to trigger a revolution. What he was trying to do is stimulate a debate. He'd um, seen that these sorts of things were going on, he disapproved of it, and so he gave 95 reasons why he thought there was some issue at stake. And what he was really doing is inviting other scholars to have a bit of a chat. However, it got a little bit out of hand. Somebody saw it, lots of people saw it in fact, they copied it, translated it into German, printed it, distributed it, Next thing you know, we have a Reformation on our hands. The European Reformation really started, in a sense, at that point, October 31st in 1517. So in a couple of years until the uh, 500th anniversary. So, why all the fuss? Yeah, why was that thing such a big deal? I mean, what was being addressed that made it so necessary and so revolutionary? Well, for Martin Luther himself, his big struggle was uh, to find an answer to a really significant question. It's a question we all need to find the answer to. How is it that a person 
can be saved or justified. How is it that a person can be saved or, if you like, justified? And ultimately his answer was quite brief. His answer was simply, by faith alone. There was a lot more to it than that, of course, and we'll unpack some of that as we go on. And at the time, this idea which seems to us so very ordinary, that we get saved because we have faith in Jesus alone, that idea that seems so very ordinary to us at that time was absolutely revolutionary. It was an idea that changed the face of Europe. It was an idea that revolutionised the church. It was an idea that changed the world. How could such a clearly biblical idea be so revolutionary, given that the church had already existed for 1,500 years at that time? Well, to some extent, the problem had been grounded in and compounded by some misconceptions, which had in turn resulted in what we Protestants think to be unbiblical teaching on the part of the church. The church of Luther's day used a Latin translation of the Bible. It's called the Vulgate. It was translated in the 4th century by uh, one of the church fathers called Jerome, and he used what was then the common language of the people of the day, that is, Latin. It's the language that everybody um, sort of read in or was educated in. They still had their own languages in their own countries, but any person who was educated could read, would be able to read and write Latin. So the Bible's translated into Latin. Unfortunately, there are occasions, of course, as is true of any translation, where you can't find an exact match for words, where the Latin word and the Greek words don't quite work. And that's part of the case here. In Latin, justificare, which is where we, of course, get our word justification, simply means to do justice to something. And so that idea of to do justice to was taken to mean that a person was who to be justified needed to be righteous in themselves. They had to have some sort of personal merit. They had to somehow assist in the process, had to do something in order to achieve this just response to them, in order to earn God's just response. It was a faith plus works. But the Greek word is dikaiosis, which means acquittal, or the judicial act of pronouncing someone righteous. Quite different. And so for, particularly during the medieval period, for about 400 years or more, but during that medieval from about 1,000 up to nearly, or probably 1,100 to 1,500, that had been the principal teaching of the church, that you had to have faith plus do stuff in order to get in God's good books. Now, Martin Luther was fortunate enough by this stage to have access to a Greek New Testament. And the Holy Spirit used that access to a Greek New Testament to open up a whole new understanding of the the concept of righteousness and justification. See, Martin Luther's revolutionary discovery was really a return to the teaching of the Bible, a return to the teaching of the Bible as it was originally written in Greek. So in the early 16th century as we look at the church of that time, it taught that salvation required that a person needed to be personally righteous. In other words, if we think about ourselves in that context, each one of us would need to be good enough to satisfy the righteousness of God. Now, if we contemplate for just a moment and think about ourselves, it's possible 
that some of us might imagine that we don't quite make it. If you do make it, could you put your hand up? No one's game. Okay. For those who are perfect among you, you let us know later. But the reality is that people believe they needed to be, or the church taught, people need to be personally righteous in order to satisfy the requirements of God. Um, and of course it wasn't an unreasonable idea really when you think about it. Think about the way we think of justice and righteousness. You know, it's pretty common for us to think about justice in fairness terms. You could do sort of the right thing by one another. Or we balance right against wrong. You know, the scales of justice sort of idea. You know, 51% of good stuff and 49% of bad stuff. Yeah, you make it in. That kind of idea. Or when we think about a just response to a crime, we want the punishment to fit the crime. All of those things seem perfectly reasonable. So it's and they're kind of the things that we kind of bring with us as we think about issues of justice and righteousness. Uh, sometimes at school, when I'm looking at ethics, I'll use an illustration. And I'll do something like this. I'll pick the smartest kid in the class. I won't say that they're the smartest kid in the class, but everybody knows they are. And I'll say, hey, look, you just did this really fantastic assignment. It's clearly worth an A, but, hey, I'm just going to give you a D. What do you reckon? And see what they, what they do. Now, of course, the kids go... First, I don't get it. But what I'm obviously wanting to do is to start to think about issues of fairness. Is it fair to give something worth an A, a D? Well, of course it's not. Why? How do we know that? What's our standard of fairness? Where does it come from? And they all sort of had this idea that something, somehow they just realise it's just not right. And so, in a sense, the teaching of the church in the medieval period wasn't you know, sort of out of step with what's just kind of ordinary, the ordinary way we think about justice and, and righteousness, kind of doing the right thing, balancing it out, being fair, you know, doing sufficient in order to get into God's uh, good books to satisfy God's requirements. And so they end up with this whole bunch of things you could do. People could perform certain acts of piety, such as participating in communion. We'll be doing that later. It won't get us into heaven, but we'll be doing it. Um, giving alms, which is very hard to get off, but <laughs> harder to put on. Um, doing penance after confession. So you go to a, you confess to the priest and then you have given a penalty of some kind. You have to go to do that. You might be saying a number of Our Fathers or Hail Marys or something of that sort. Or giving to the poor or something of that ilk. Um, perhaps visiting holy sites or visiting relics. You know, the, you know, the toenail of Thomas or something of that sort held in, in the Vatican Museum. Um, and if all of that proved inadequate, which it would, then you could have uh, some time in purgatory where you could suffer um, sufficiently to pay the penalty for the residual sin in order to get it into heaven. Um, at the time of Martin Luther, and certainly prior to that, one of the things that people could do was purchase what were called indulgences, which is basically just a, a slip of paper in which the Pope gave a dispensation to have time taken off purgatory. People could purchase those. You could, you could earn them for other reasons. You could, you could get them for doing some holy act, uh, maybe going on a crusade, that kind of thing. Um, but in a way, they were kind of exploiting the, uh, the poor, but particularly exploiting the ignorant, uh, and creating a sense of you know, real superstition. And Martin Luther really objected to this kind of thing, and that's why he wrote his 95 theses. He had theological objections, but he also saw that people were being... Um, 
you know, sort of taken uh, advantage of. A guy named Tetzel was in his neighbourhood selling indulgences. That was the motivation to write these things. He expected there to be um, further discussion, and there wasn't. The Pope, it was believed by the church, had the keys to the treasury of merit. There are a bunch of people who had lived throughout the uh, throughout Christian history, people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, saints. Those sorts of people had excess merit. They had more merit than they needed to get into heaven. And so that excess merit could be stored in a treasury of merit, uh, which the Pope had the keys to, could then unlock that merit and give it to those who had insufficient merit, which was basically everybody else. Uh, and that would help get time off purgatory. So you can see the whole thing became mired in uh, a teaching that we think is quite false, uh, a teaching that sort of uh, is really grounded in uh, a misunderstanding of a word, justificare, and also uh, played upon people's uh, you know, deep love for their loved ones because you could get help um, get people out of uh, purgatory as well by paying uh, an amount on their behalf and so on and so forth. So it was a kind of exploitative act and process as well. And often the money was used to do things like pay off debts that the church had incurred um, through uh, borrowings from the various exploitative bankers of the time. So nothing much has changed, is it, with regard to banking? Now, um, and for Martin Luther, of course, the whole thing was deeply, deeply personal. He was troubled by what appeared to him to be the absolutely impossible demands of God. Now, how could any fallen, sinful person meet the just demands of an absolutely holy, morally perfect God? See, Luther understood the gospel to be little more than an extension of the law. And he did everything he possibly could to satisfy the requirements of that law as he understood it. So he would spend hours in confession. In fact, other uh, priests almost ran a mile whenever they saw him coming because they knew if he turned up, they were there for hours as he confessed every possible sin he could possibly imagine. And then as he went out, he'd remember another one and go back. He was so dedicated, so desirous of pleasing this incredibly demanding God that he would do that. He tormented his own body by way of penance, so he'd sleep on a you know, sort of a stone bed. He'd stand out in the cold and so on. Uh, he visited Rome, saw various relics there. He prayed before them. He touched them. He climbed up steps. He did all sorts of things that were seen to be ways of, uh, in a sense, uh, of uh, pleasing God, of meeting God's requirements. What it all ended up doing for him was simply increase his torment. Because he came to recognise that whatever he did, it didn't actually amount to enough. So God, for him, became an object of terror. An object of terror. And that was until what we call his tower experience, his conversion. Happened sometime after 1508. Uh, No one's exactly sure when, perhaps 1512. But he came across, of course, one of the passages that we know well where it says that the, the righteous or the just shall live by faith in Romans 1.17. And he says this of this experience. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I couldn't believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmured greatly, I was angry with God and said, 
as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost to original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. So you see where he's going with this. He actually understood the gospel to be another, a furthering of God's punishment. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul, as the Apostle Paul, at that place most ardently desiring to know what St Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God, with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God, with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. This whole new understanding of what all that meant changed the life of Martin Luther and it brought on the Reformation. It changed the world. We are here today because, in a sense, God used that to create the Protestant church. This renewed understanding of justification by faith, of the righteousness of God. This is the meaning, says Luther. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive Righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. Note the word passive. We don't do nothing. It's passive. The church had taught that we must do something. And it's that doing of something that so burdened Martin Luther and every sincere believer that you had to do something. Otherwise, you couldn't satisfy the requirements of God. You were tormented, you're effectively lost. So what do we do with all that? Well, let's move into the scriptures themselves. That's the history lesson, by the way. So that's the first part over. The next bit's shorter. That part was really interesting, though. I just thought I'd remind you of that. Okay. Now, so what do we do with that? Justification by faith. What does justification actually mean? Well, it's actually just a legal term. It's a legal term. And it means simply to declare righteous. It means to acquit so the, and the way it's used in the New Testament needs to be unpacked a little bit, and that's why we're going to be looking at the passage from Romans 3. So if you've got your Bibles there, you turn up to Romans 3, and we'll just run it through a few key terms uh, in Romans 3 from verse 21. Now you notice that the, the verse 21 opens with two words, but now, but now. Because it opens with those two words, we can realise, of course, that there must be a whole lot of other words before it, and there are. So those two words follow a fairly involved discussion which begins in Romans 1, 16, 17 and goes through to Romans 3, 20, 
where Paul argues for the universality of human sin. That is, that every single person, without exception, is sinful. Every single person, without exception, is sinful. Whether they be Jews or not Jews, Jews or Gentiles. Whether those people have the law or they don't have the law. If the only law they have is the law of their conscience. Every person is sinful. Condemned by the law, that is the Old Testament law, or condemned by conscience. Romans 3 verse 9 says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now get this bit from verses 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That probably includes everybody, I reckon. Isn't that what an incredible statement? So incredibly inclusive that every single person is sinful. No one does good. No one. So how then can the sinner become righteous if no one does good? Romans 3.23 makes it clear that no one can possibly meet the standard of holiness set by God. No one can match God's moral perfection or the moral perfection that God demands. No one can in themselves merit heaven. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a memory verse, isn't it? We probably all know that one. Romans 3.20 says something similar. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As well as that, God holds everyone accountable for their actions. In Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. Imagine coming before God, knowing what we are each like. We would, we would not be able to be acquitted on the basis of our personal merit. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So God has set the demands, established what righteousness is. It is in himself. He is a righteous being. It's, the, it's his degree of moral perfection that we're meant to match, but we can't. What happens? We will be held accountable for our failure to meet the demands that God has placed upon those whom he has created. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Imagine if we actually received what was due. We've got to be honest with ourselves. So the conclusion here is simply that every human being, bar none, stands guilty before God and may well come before God as a guilty being, a guilty person, uh, at the time of judgment. In other words, in this passage at the moment, we see that there is nothing we can do in ourselves or by ourselves to gain God's favour. We cannot and will not be found righteous on merit. We can't earn salvation no matter how hard we try. And yet that's our natural inclination. Even that's, that's the natural perception of people who are not believers or are Christians. You just wander around and talk to people. They'll say, oh, Christian, oh, you must be like one of those good people. You must do good stuff. This whole idea that Christians somehow earn their brownie points by being good. Not true. We become good because God has made us that way. 
And we still remain in our sin. We still struggle with that every day, as we know. But any goodness we have is a gift of God. In addition to the universality of sin, we, can, we also have the revelation of God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's shown to be a judge. And yet he also promises mercy. He punishes Israel for their disobedience by bringing foreign nations against them, exiles them and all that sort of stuff. And yet he promises that he will grant mercy to those same people. How weird is that? So he exercises justice and judgment, but he promises mercy. And we know that there are many people in the stories of the Old Testament who actually received the mercy of God, though they were sinners. We just need to read Hebrews 11, see a great list of them. So we've got that. So we've got mercy and we've got justice. And the two just are not compatible. They just don't work together. Justice excludes mercy. Mercy excludes justice, or so it appears. So here's the dilemma we're left with at the end of the Old Testament. We know there are people who have received the mercy of God, and yet God says he is just. We know there are people who have been punished, but God says he is merciful. How can God then exercise mercy without compromising his justice. How is it possible for God to be merciful and just at the same time and in relation to the same person? It's a question we're going to ask ourselves. And the answer is, is in a sense, the solution to what Graham Goldsworthy calls God's problem, this idea that justice and mercy are not compatible. The answer is found in the gospel. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the gospel is not merely an extension of the law as the medieval church and Martin Luther had once thought. Well, the law reveals the reality of human sinfulness. The gospel both meets the demands of the law and also deals with the consequences of the law. Furthermore, the gospel includes all who put their trust in Jesus. It's not just limited to Jews. One of the things that's really interesting about Romans 3.23 is that it's followed by Romans 3.24. Sounds odd, doesn't it, really? Unless you're a child counting and you skip the numbers. But anyway, um, but you do have that. And it's interesting that when we're given a memory verse at Sunday school, or kid's zone, it's limited to, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But think about it. For all have sinned, that's Jews and Gentiles, fall short of the glory of God, and, so who's the and applied to? It's the same all. So the all who have sinned are also the all who are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, the ones who have fallen short of the glory of God are the same ones who are justified by his grace. That's good news. So how does it work? How is it that the justifying of sinners does not compromise God's righteousness? Well, the answer is found in the word propitiation. We spelling test after this, by the way. So just remember that one, propitiation. It's a, it really is a word worth remembering and understanding. You'll find in some other versions of the Bible, there'll be some versions that say expiation. It's really the wrong word. The word's propitiation and should be understood that way. But propitiation means to appease wrath. 
right? Appease wrath. It's a temple term, and it's used in the context of sacrifice. See, one thing stands in the place of another, and in doing so serves to avert the wrath of the God to whom the sacrifice is made. And here that term's applied to the work of Christ. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. He did so in our place. He suffered physical torment and death that we might have eternal life. He was forsaken by his father so that we could be accepted by that same father. He endured the absence of God so that we might enjoy his unending presence. He suffered hell that we might enter heaven. It's an incredible thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in this way the righteousness of God is satisfied and mercy or grace can be shown to sinners such as us without compromising the just judgment of God. See, it's vicarious. Someone else bore it for us. So justice is served... Mercy is given. So God's justice is never compromised. God's righteousness is never compromised, yet it is satisfied. It goes even further. The very work of Christ actually reveals God's righteousness in action. In uh, Romans three twenty-five and 26, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, in the sacrificial death of Christ, God shows that granting mercy to sinners past, right, past over sins of the former time, and present is in fact just. Some of us might ask from time to time, how is it the saints of the Old Testament are saved? Well, they're saved because Christ died for them. He died for them, and his death is applicable to those who died before he lived. You see, God has solved then his own problem. How do justice and mercy become compatible? Well, they meet at the cross. Jesus willingly paid the penalty for our sin, having lived a perfect life. God's wrath is satisfied. No further punishment is required. In fact, to punish a person who is in Christ, would actually be unjust, for the penalty's already been paid. It'd be rather like, for example, if somebody in your family received a fine for, say, speeding, just a thought, um, and another person in that family paid that fine, that fine cannot be asked of a person again. It's already been paid. It would be, in fact, unjust to ask to pay it again. It's already done. It's been satisfied. See, justice is satisfied. Grace is possible. In fact, the securing of this justice is in itself an act of grace, for it is one at great cost. It's God's gift to us. Jesus gave himself for our sake. That is grace. God's righteousness turns out to be more wonderful than could possibly be imagined. For not only is God the standard of righteousness in himself, he actually meets his own standard. He meets it himself. Why? For love. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, because Jesus died in our place, God can rightly 
and justly acquit us and declare us righteous. It's an imputed righteousness. It's not a personal righteousness. It's a righteousness applied, if you like, to our account. It's a righteousness accounted to us, as Paul personally understood so deeply, as he uh, recounts in Philippians chapter 3, from in verses 8 and 9, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not, that, not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, for us then, righteousness becomes, in a sense, a description of our status. It's our standing before God. It is, it's declared by God on the grounds of Christ's death, granted on the grounds of Christ's resurrection, given to us as a gift, apprehended by faith. We call it imputed righteousness, which means that it's a right, the righteousness which we have been um, credited with. It's not our own. It's Christ's righteousness. We can never achieve righteousness personally based on our own merit, but Christ can and has and does. And it's that righteousness that has been granted to us as we place ourselves under him. We are, in a sense, in that sense, in Christ. So all who are in Christ by faith uh, have received that acquittal. Uh, Ivan Bowden used to use this uh, illustration, I'll, I'll, and I will show you. It's, fairly, it's really simple, but it just illustrates nicely. Here we have a pen. Excellent. I won't make it disappear or anything. This is just a pen. The pen is now in the book, which is, in fact, a Bible, but that's not the point. But the pen is in the Bible. Wherever the Bible is, under my arm, most unfortunate for the Bible, uh, wherever the Bible is, the pen is. So it's because the pen moves itself there, the Bible does. So if we are in Christ, wherever Christ is, we are. Simple illustration. Wherever Christ is, we are. Just as the pen is in the book, wherever the book is, the pen is. Whatever situation or state Christ is in, whatever he has earned and won, whoever he, whatever he is, uh, in the, if you like, in the sight of God, we have become. So we are the adopted children of God. We are righteous because Christ is righteous. Our task is simply to trust in that, in that reality. Romans 4 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, the wages are not counted as a gift, but as, a, as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. No, it's just counted. So our, our task is simply to trust in Christ who has satisfied the righteous requirements of God. And we are then acquitted. We are declared righteous. This is justification. This is justification. For by grace you have been saved, according to Ephesians 2, through faith. Not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what do we do with all that? And again, I'll be really brief now. Some benefits of that, um, that reality. The, the reality of our standing before God of Christ's death and so on. Firstly, assurance. See, our standing is guaranteed by a loving, unchangeable God, and it's grounded in his righteousness. It's not dependent on us, frail, sinful as we are. If it depended on us, we'd lose it. But it's actually dependent upon God. So we can be absolutely assured of our salvation because it's granted to us by 
God. See, everything that needs to be done has been done by Christ. And the verdict of not guilty has been pronounced. We're not good enough in ourselves, but Jesus is. And he stands in our place. It changes the way we think as well. See, our understanding of righteousness and justice must change because the righteousness we now bear, uh, or we now bear, is born because we are in Christ. We can't make any kind of claim for self-sufficiency. We can't claim in any way to be better than others, and that's why God's accepted us. Uh, We can't say that we're more acceptable to God because of some personal quality or meritorious act. See, all vanity is washed away. We are sinners guilty before God, and yet we are righteous because of all that Christ has done. We have been pronounced righteous thanks to Jesus. Gratitude. See, if we sit there or we stand or whatever um, for a moment and contemplate what it costs Christ to secure our justification, we would fall to our knees in thanks, in gratitude, in praise, and we would seek to serve him every day of our lives, for to live is Christ. Just think about that for a moment, how we might uh, be struck by the price paid to secure our justification, our acquittal. And finally, it's a a message that I think it's too good to keep to ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting us, to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that a message that's too good to keep to ourselves? Isn't it a message that we need to share with the world around us? For everybody in the world is a sinful person in need of salvation, in need of God's acquittal. We are those people also, and we found it. God has declared us not guilty. It's the gospel that carries that message. It's the gospel that is God's way of solving God's problem. It's the gospel in which we see justice and mercy become compatible so that God can exercise his justice, complete his righteousness, and grant us the gift of forgiveness, acquittal, salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that because of it, we can be justified. We can be declared innocent, righteous. That we can be declared to be people who are as, exist as though we had no sin. We thank you for all that Jesus has done. We thank you for the suffering he endured. We thank you for his obedient life. We thank you, thank you for the fact that he conquered death. All that that we might find uh, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a life with God and entry into heaven. For this we give you praise. Father, now as we move into a time of communion, help us to remember as we contemplate further all that is that the elements represent that Jesus died and gave himself that we might live. Amen.